All right, all right, all right. Okay, this is weird. I'm drinking someone else's tea. I just brought someone else's tea up with me. This one. Anyway, that's yours? Okay, come get your tea. What are you doing? Thank you. I appreciate that. I stole my wife's tea. Grab your seats if you would. We are thrilled you're here. My name is Daniel Grothy, pastor here at New Life Friday Night. And it's good to kind of have some summer rhythms, you know, routines. Summer's coming to a close, which I'm not super excited about, but the routine's coming. I'll be subtle. Kids going back to school. That's a good thing, right? Uh, Bless all of you teachers with our children. Amen. Um, But anyway, I'm I'm thrilled that you came tonight. And what we're going to do is I'll read out of Psalm 19 here in just a minute. What I want to talk about tonight is developing a sense of the story of the Bible. So several weeks ago, we talked about developing a theology of play and then developing a theology of church another week and then last week, developing a theology of friendship. And this week, I want to talk about developing a sense of the story of the Bible. And so what I'll do is I'll read Psalm 19, 7 through 14, and then I'll pray and we'll jump in here. So hear the word of the Lord tonight out of Psalm 19. This is David. And he says, the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the writings, the the words etched out on the tablets, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. And the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, they're right and they give joy to the heart. And the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever, and the decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous, and they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb, and by those words, by those precepts, by those laws, by those statutes, by God's commands, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? God, forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me, and then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And we pray this almost every week at the end of our prayer. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord. We need you to open up your word for us tonight. We need you, Lord, to give us joy in your house tonight. I'll just confess that there's some heaviness in me tonight, and I need you to lighten me up. I need you to help. (laughs) Can the preacher just confess that right now? Lord, I need your help. And Lord, I, I know I'm not the only one in the room that could use some strength and could use some wisdom and could use some joy and could use some enlightening. Lord, would you lighten us up tonight with your word? So we invite you tonight. We pray, Lord, that your word would race through this place and that you would be preeminent here, that I would decrease, that you might increase. We pray, Lord, that the spirit would have his way here in this place. And may these words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable. In your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, and we pray tonight in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. The Bible, the Bible, 
the Bible. What in the world is this book? I mean, uh, the most sold book in history, the best-selling book in history. It's, it's 66 books. It's some 40 different authors, give or take. Uh, it's, it's in three primary languages that it was composed, and uh, it's written in different countries and different regimes and different political situations and written in times of war and written in times of slavery and written in times of exile and maybe a thousand years from the first book to the second, maybe more, who knows, but just written over a long span of time over a, a, a broad region of the world by some 40 different authors in three different languages, 66 books. This book is so absolutely fascinating and so beautiful. But I want to ask tonight, what is the Bible? Like, How do we approach it? Glenn Packham for years has talked about how we treat and really mistreat the Bible. And he, he talked about five common approaches that is, is not unusual today in our moment as how we mistreat the Bible. The first, we treat it like a textbook. We, we just read it for information, okay? And uh, we open up to the front page of the Bible, and we, if we treat it as some sort of a science text, we're a little confused because the first two chapters are this wonderful, beautiful creation poem. And so we're trying to get rigid and scientific and treat it like a, a textbook. And so we, we read it just strictly for information, and, and that's not ever going to be the right approach, treating it as a textbook. We we treat it like a cookbook. <laughs> we read it for formulae, you know, recipes. Put these ingredients together and voila, you've got this wonderful, you know, righteous meal that you can, like, we, we treat it like this cookbook. We treat it like a, a coffee table book and we, we read it for inspiration. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope and all this. But what we don't realize is that that little verse that we take, we sort of lifted, airlifted out of its context and, and made our little coffee table sort of hallmark hope. He's writing to people that God just said you're going into 70 years of exile. <laughs> for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. So we can't treat it as this sort of cheap coffee table book that gives us, you know, a little hit of inspiration. It's, some of us treat it like a magic book and we read it for secret power, you know incantations and elixirs against the devil and, you know, you know, creating these potions and put this verse with that verse and if you do this and you shake it up and it's going to be just fine, like we, uh, uh, the f fifth way is a rule book. This is how you do everything and you, it's just, and it's, it's rigid and it's all, there's no life in it and it's not this letter of love from a loving father. It's just you plug and play the, the rules and if you, if you do these things, your life will turn out like this and then our lives are complex enough and they don't exactly turn out like that and then we get mad at God. And It's, it's not this rigid rule book. And So tonight, what is the Bible and what is it for and how does it work and what is it saying? And what are we to make of some of these really troubling texts? Like the Bible, I don't know if you've read it, but it's wild in places. It, it's, it's like, what do you do with Leviticus? What do you do with numbers? What do you do with the genealogies? And what do you do with those wars, those holy wars in the Old Testament? It's a crazy book at times. Can we just say amen? That the, the Bible is this complex and, and beautiful and interesting and intriguing and sometimes befuddling 
text. What is the Bible saying tonight? So what I want to do is zoom out to this sort of Google Earth 35,000 foot view of the biblical text. And I want to put six things in front of you, the story of the Bible in six movements. So for those of you who like three-point sermons, just double that, okay? Six movements of the Bible, okay? If you have your notebook, you can write these down. I think there's gonna be some good learning tonight, but what I hope is that we're able to begin to locate where we are in this text and locate what different portions of this text are about so that we can see the big sweep of salvation history from Genesis to Revelation, the story of the Bible in six movements. Movement number one, creation. In the beginning, God. Like start there with our holy book. Before my troubles and my anxieties and my fears, in the beginning, God. Before wars and rumors of wars and tribalism and nation rising up against nation, before regimes rising and falling, before cocksure leaders of, of different nations and, and wealthy people who are trying to destroy others, before Vladimir Putin's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, God's intent, God's first move, God as love, God as beautiful, God as wise, God as architect, God as gardener, God as the one who's intent on building a beautiful story. In the beginning, God is the author and the initiator and he's the wellspring and everything else is tributary and derivative from God. God was first and he created this beautiful story and we see that he saw that it was good, Genesis 1 and 2, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good, and then we get down to Genesis 1, 26, and God said, let us make man in our own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, and then he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and go and take dominion over the animals and the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and all, like, have a blast, Adam and Eve. And God blessed them and God blessed them and God blessed them. We are so quick to run to Genesis 3, but we need to start in Genesis 1 and 2 and we're so quick to talk about the curse. We, we, for all the talk about the curse, we would do well to remember that the blessing was pre-existent. Can we just start there? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he saw that it was good, and he blessed humankind, made in his image, dignified us in his image, gave us the creativity that he uses to create the world, and he says, go, and now bear my image in the world, and I bless you, and I bless you, and I bless you, and I'll walk in the garden in the cool of the day with you because this is who I am. You are mine, and I am yours. The first movement of the story of salvation, the story of the Bible is creation. And then it says toward the end, the very last verse of Genesis 2, so Genesis 1 and 2 is this beautiful, explosive creation poem, and it says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no 
shame. What we see here in this gift that God gives humankind, it's a creation of intimacy and closeness and communion. And for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and the two shall become one flesh. And it is not good that people should be alone for I'll make helpers suitable for you. And God is the God who's creating this world of friendship and closeness and intimacy. And they were both naked and they were unashamed. That's how the creation poem ends. Movement one, creation is beautiful and God is good and blessing is preexistent. Before the curse ever became a part of the story, God breathed his breath of life and the spirit filled our lungs and we became living beings and blessing is our inheritance. Movement number one, can you say amen? amen. Creation. Second movement that we're very familiar with is the movement called the fall. Creation and then fall. There's this musical score going on in Genesis 1 and 2, and it's this major key with major beauty. And Genesis 3, it shifts to a minor chord. The minor chord changes. And it starts, there's this brooding thing happening in Genesis 3. And what we see in the garden where God is at work, the enemy is always lurking in the shadows. Creation. Beauty, communion, and God walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. You turn the page to movement number two, Genesis three, and the snake is slithering up, seducing and, 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 and subtly suggesting new ways forward. And here's what the serpent says. The serpent has a speech. God's speech is blessing. God's speech is goodness. God's speech is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and go name the animals and bear my image, have a blast. The, the serpent's speech is, is much darker, and, and he leads off. The first two things, really the only two things he says in this conversation with Adam and Eve is, did God really say? Like, are you serious? He, he, he told you you couldn't touch the tree? In this, oh, of course he did, because God is holding out on you. God is stingy, God is afraid, God is fragile, God, God's got an ego problem, and if, if you take of that tree and you partake, what will happen is you will become like him, and God knows that, and so he told you, God is scared, and God doesn't want you happy, and God wants to hold out on you, and God wants to block you from goodness. Did God really say that? And if he did, he's a tyrant. And then the enemy says, you will not certainly die. It's not true. You'll become like God and you'll be powerful and you'll be wise and pleasure will be your portion and life will work for you. Don't, don't let God limit you. Don't let God keep you narrow in, in these narratives. No, like take your own story into your own hands. You won't certainly die. And did God really even say that? The enemy is sowing seeds of doubt and the enemy is trying to get us to mistrust God. He's undermining God's authority and what happens is Adam and Eve take from the tree and we all know that there's this fracturing fall. There, sin enters the world and chaos with it and death and destruction and what you see right away in Genesis chapter three, the consequences of the curse in Genesis three, it's the fall, it's the, it's the fracturing of communion with God. And Adam and Eve go hiding in the corner of the garden. They, want, they, they, they all of a sudden... Genesis 2.25, and they were both naked and they were unashamed. It's good. It's blessing. It's communion. There's favor. I can look you in the eye. I'm not against you. I'm for you. And God is with us and we are okay. Genesis 3, 
they go hiding. Somehow they know that they've done something wrong. Somehow they know that there's a fracturing in the world. Somehow Adam is now a competitor with Eve and Eve is trying to long for him, but Adam's trying to domineer and, 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 and flex his authority. And we see that there's this breaking of communion with God and with husband and wife, man and woman. Genesis 4, their first set of sons, Cain kills his brother Abel. It's the fracturing of the family. And we see that everywhere. Genesis 6 through 9, Noah and the flood, we see the fracturing of the created order. The earth is rebelling. The earth is groaning. The earth is opening up and swallowing. The earth that was meant to be this place of safety and solidity, now at the bottom falls out and people are, you just see the curse running rampant through creation. In Genesis 11, we see the Tower of Babel. The people are trying to get their story back and their power back and their agency back and their domination back. Essentially, they want to be able to live free of God. And they speak one language at this point, Genesis 12, and they said, we will build a tower to the heavens and we will be like God and we'll, make, we'll get this story back. And what happens is, in that moment, they're scattered and their languages are confused. It's the Tower of Babel. What are you saying? You're babbling. I can't understand. And, and now where there's separation and tribalism and what used to be communion is now the fracturing of the peoples and the going of their separate ways, living against each other and separated from each other. Can you see the result of the curse in the fall? We've got creation. We've got the fall but notice the first thing God says to sinful people, Adam and Eve go hiding. They understand that they're naked and now they're ashamed and they make fig leaves and they cover themselves and they hide and they can't make eye contact. But the first thing that God says to sinful people is, where are you? He doesn't say, you stupid idiot, you fool, you failure, you no good, ungrateful twerps. What is wrong? God does not say this to them. He, his heart is broken and he longs to get his people back. And so when sin enters the world and chaos and death with it, God comes running and he comes calling, where are my people? Don't you ever forget that God's first response to you is running after you to find you. Three chapters into the Bible, we see that God will always pursue his wayward people. Creation, fall, at the end of that fall story, God asking, where are you? Then the third movement, creation, fall, then Israel. Or we could say it like this, the people of God. Genesis 12, 1. Abram is minding his own business in Ur of the Chaldees. He's got a beautiful thing going on. He's living out there in the far regions and, and his business is thriving and his dad has lands and herds and flocks and, and Abram has got it set. His inheritance is coming. They've met with the lawyers and all the paperwork has been signed. All he's got to do is just not mess it up and he is a wealthy man and his life is locked in and he can, he can coast until God speaks. Genesis 12, 1 and 3. Go, Abram, to a land that I will show you. Leave your father's house. Leave your, leave your comfort. Leave your land that you're familiar with. Leave, your, leave the land of your people and go. Get on the road. Pack your bags, Abram and Sarai. God has a plan for you, and you don't know me, but I know you. And you don't know what I'm going to do with your life, but I, I promise it's going to be good. I just need you to live by faith. Leave. Let's go. 
and I'll show you on the way. The life of faith feels like go to a land that I will show you. I have no idea what God is doing with my life. I wish I did. I wish I could lock it down and circle up the wagons and sort of pin things down and feel safe about the future. There is no safety. There's just communion. <laughs> there's trust. There's, 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 you know what? I will lead you into the way of everlasting life, but it's always going to feel uncertain. It's always, there's a reason we call it the life of faith, not the life of certainty. Go to a land that I will show you. He gathers a people. And this people, Abraham has Isaac against all odds. Sarah's 90 and Abram is 100 and it's just not working anymore until God says, yes, it is. And then this little boy, Isaac, comes and God says, hey, give me Isaac. Psych. Actually, no, keep going. I just wanted to see if you would trust me. And Isaac is, lives and Isaac has Jacob and Jacob has 12 sons and Jacob gets renamed to Israel the people of Israel, and they start flourishing, and they go over to Egypt because there's this, this famine, and they're, they're thriving over there. God, Pharaoh enslaves them, and then there's a famine back home in Israel, and, and, and Joseph is over there who was sold by his brothers, and all of a sudden, the brothers come to Egypt and discover that Joseph is not dead, and Joseph, God has set him up to lead the nation's forward in this terrible famine, seven years of plenty and then seven years of lack. And all of a sudden, these people start getting strong in Egypt, but then Joseph dies and a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. And he goes, look, this is cheap labor right here. We can make these people our slaves. The Hebrews work hard and, and they could throw a political coup. So we need to make them our slaves. And for 400 years, they're in Egypt, sweating it out, more bricks, less straw, the lash of the slave master on their back. They're crying out to God. We, we see that God has gathered this people and the people though, they're, they're living in difficulty and they're living in exile and finally God raises up Moses and leads them out into the promised land and a land flowing with milk and honey after 40 years in the wilderness and then all, all of a sudden here comes Saul and then after Saul who throws away his kingship, God raises up David, a man after his own heart and David unites the monarchy and the 12 tribes are thriving and the beautiful walls of Jerusalem are secure and they have their place and then Solomon rises up behind him and builds the temple and they're worshiping and they're worshiping and they're worshiping until they aren't and they've created their idols. And then Assyria comes in to correct them, leads them to exile, and then Babylon years later to exile, and then Persia to exile. What you see is that God has intended always to have a people for himself, and he says, trust my words, and I'll lead you in the way of everlasting life. And remember Adam and Eve. Remember that the snake always slithers up to lead you into the way of destruction, but if you'll just hide my words in your heart, you'll have life and life more abundantly. God has always been looking to gather a people, and I want you to see how the Old Testament ends. It ends with the prophet Malachi speaking and again, sort of this dark minor chord, this, you see the tension in the text. This is like no way to end a letter or a book or even a, a canon. But here's how the Old Testament closes up with the book of Malachi. See, I will send the prophet Elijah, God is speaking. I'll send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. 
And he will turn, this prophet will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with the curse. Let's close the book. Old Testament, 400 years of silence. I'll send someone to you. I'll send a prophet to you. He'll stir things up and the hearts of the parents will be united to the children and the children will look at the parents and communion will be restored, the communion that was lost in the garden. Because God is raising up a people for himself, I'll put the story back together and if there's no story put back together, the land will be struck with a curse. The God of blessing says, I will bring you back into blessing. I will reunite you with communion with each other and with me, and the blessing will break out. And if you don't say yes to what this prophet is going to do, you'll just continue to live in the curse. Please don't do that. Creation, fall. Israel, God collecting for himself a people and teaching them and giving them his words and asking them to hide those words in their hearts so that they might not sin against him. We, but we leave with this dark note, or else I will strike the land with a curse. This is not God saying, I'm going to make it hard for you. He's saying, if you don't commune with me, it will be hard for you. God is not trying to threaten them. God is telling them the truth about what happens when we break communion with God. If you choose to break communion, it's going to be cursed. Please choose life. Creation, fall, Israel, but movement number four, and thank God for movement number four, Jesus. You see this moment here, 400 years of darkness and silence and brooding minor key changes and, and there's this curse that's looming and there's separation of people and, and what is actually happening and will we find the promised land that you promised our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because out here we're just suffering. Will we ever get back to the promised land and this little baby is born who like Moses would rise up out of the Nile River to lead God's people out of Egypt. This is the, this is the true baby. <laughs> Jesus Christ of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, and he rises and he is the son of the living God in the flesh and Jesus is born. And Mary, what does she say when the angel speaks to her? Hey, Mary, guess what? You're pregnant. Salvation's gonna come through this baby. You should name him Jesus for he'll save God's people from their sins. And Mary, uh, what I want you to see is, is Mary becomes a sort of redeemed Eve. Can you see this? Eve ate from the tree and Mary said, let it be, be it unto me according to your word. Eve and Adam mistrusted God and so they took the story into their own hands thinking that God was holding out on them. And Mary, when the announcement is given to her that you're going to have a child, I know you've never had sex and I know that, you're, I know that this is confounding to you, but trust me, the spirit of the living God is going to do something in you and for you and through you for the salvation of the world. And Mary, instead of taking it into her own hands, she just opens herself and she says, be it unto me according to your Get the story back on track. If, if, if you want me to be a part of that, get the story back on track. And Mary becomes this redeemed Eve figure. And Jesus, her child, is the renewed Adam. Do you see this? Fully God, but fully man. And he rises, and what, he, what does he do? He retreads the footsteps of Adam and Eve, and he's, he remains faithful to his father. I want you to see the three temptations that are in the garden. 
The three temptations that go back to Genesis, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is right at the core of the human interaction in the presence of God with the, with the snake slithering up to threaten them and to seduce them away. The three temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look at the text. Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh. I need to eat. It's, it, it's a true need. I need provision. I need safety. I need to know that it's going to be there when I ask for it. I need to know. It's the lust of the flesh. She, she needed that food, and, and it was pleasing to the, to the eye. Adam and Eve went, gosh, this is beautiful. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, when, when they saw that it was pleasing to the eye and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Remember, the enemy told them, you'll be like God if you take this story into your own hands, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then Jesus, this, this man shows up in, in Nazareth and Galilee and he's walking the dusty roads of Palestine and in the wilderness, Jesus endures the original temptations. Please notice what happens when he goes out. Remember, he prays and he fasts for 40 days in the wilderness. And what does the enemy say to him? He says, tell this stone to become bread. It's the lust of the flesh. 40 days without food or, or, or water and he's, he's ready to die. He, he's coming to the end of his own strength and his humanity and he's on the brink and the snake slithers up and says, Jesus, Tell this stone to become bread. It's the lust of the flesh. And what does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. By every word that comes out of the mouth of God. In the moment of temptation, Jesus quotes the scripture and turns to the scripture and feasts on the scripture. And he, 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 res he resists the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. The enemy takes him up to the highest mountain and shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. It's the lust of the eyes. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and says, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you. All you have to do is take one cheap shortcut and then the rest of it is yours forever. And Jesus resists him and says, get thee behind me. Jesus says, no, I will not bow the knee to the lust of the eyes. And then the enemy says, throw yourself off the temple. Tempt God. He said in Psalm 91, he'll give his angels charge over you to keep you safe. They'll catch you. It's okay, Jesus. Just take a risk and make God bail you out from something stupid. And the enemy tries to come with that temptation and Jesus resists the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Jesus, what he's doing, he's the renewed Adam. And he, where Adam and Eve fell, Jesus stands faithful. And through Jesus's obedience, Human communion with God is possible again. He's restored that possibility for obedience. And I want you to see in this Jesus story, the prophets of old, the prophets of the Old Testament start to make sense. Ezekiel said that God would do something in that last day when he pours out his spirit and the hearts of flesh would be turned, the hearts of stone would be turned to hearts of flesh with new and right desires. And Jesus shows up and we see this enacted. Malachi 4, the hearts of the parents to the children, and Jesus is restoring communion with people, and Joel, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and Jesus is walking those roads, and you see the work of the spirit poured out. We've got creation, we've got fall, 
we've got Israel, and thank God we've got Jesus. And in Jesus, God's where are you becomes, I am with you. They're hiding in Genesis 3. They've gone. They've tucked themselves away. They're naked and ashamed, and they know it, and they know that they've fractured communion. And in Jesus, Jesus, God's where are you is God saying, here I am. (laughs) The God who will always come running after his people that go astray. We see that Jesus is the full and final answer to that. And he stretches out his arms on the cross, and he's defeated, and he's, he's crushed. Look at this one little detail. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And then Jesus hung on a cross naked and was publicly shamed. Do you see this? It was beautiful at the beginning with Adam and Eve when communion was there. And then when they sinned, they understood that they were naked and and it was shameful to them. And Jesus is hung on a cross naked and he's publicly shamed. What he's doing is he's reversing the curse. He's taking it into his own body. He's, he's exhausting it of its power. Jesus says, I will take the full and final blow of all of your sin and all of your shame and all of the evil of the world into my own body. And he was dead and they put him in the grave until he wasn't dead. On the third day, he rose again. And what we see in this moment is it pivots to movement number five, which is the spirit-empowered church what is the bible talking about creation fall israel jesus and then the spirit empowered church we see the day of pentecost where the spirit is poured out and babel no one could understand the tower of babel no one could understand the other and they were separated and they were sent out into the far corners of the earth and in the day of pentecost what happens is it says that each one heard the gospel in their own language that it was the reversal of Babel, that it was the spirit is poured out and now God is bringing people together. God is restoring humankind to himself and to each other. And in the church, here, tonight, hundreds of people, and we speak different political languages and we speak different economic languages and we, we have different cultural persuasions, we have different convictions, we come from different families of origin, we have people who have immigrated from other countries here, we have people from the, the, the Bible Belt South and we've got people from the Pacific Northwest and we've got people from Boston and New York City and we've got people from Albuquerque and Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Did you know that that's a town? Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. We got people all over the place, right here, smashed together in the house of God. And somehow, some way, we're not living against one another, but each one is hearing the gospel in their own language. We've been restored. We are the renewed people of God. We bless those that curse us, and we pray for those that despitefully use us. And we come, and we give offerings, and we pool our resources together. Because when Jesus came, he was going to to, to break the curse and restore us back to communion. And here we are as the spirit-empowered church. God was always going to get his people back. God was always gonna raise up a remnant. God was always going to, to send a people, a redeemed people, Jews and Gentiles and male and female and rich and poor and black and white and brown and, and Democrats and Republicans all called together and filled with his Holy Spirit and sent out to be a blessing to the world. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, the spirit-empowered church, and the final movement. And don't you ever forget this final movement. 
is new creation. Revelation 21, one through five, John has been exiled on the island of Patmos by the greatest regime in world history at the time, the Romans. And they perfected the craft of execution. They created the cross and they hung people up in public to dominate them and to scare them into obedience to the regime. And John himself has been sent out as a political prisoner on the island of Patmos and his heart is broken and he's separated from his seven churches that he's the pastor to and his life is coming to an end until the spirit of the Lord gives him a vision of what is coming. And in that setting of being a political prisoner, John begins to see a new reality crashing in. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God, which is the full and final reversal of Genesis 3. God finally does that work of restoration and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and he who was seated On the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And we are here tonight. As we come to this moment where we're about to close and receive communion, we're carrying pain. And and I want to give you tonight seven words to hold on to for the rest of your life. Seven words that when life breaks up in front of you and, and, and it feels like there's the disintegration of all that felt stable and steady. When, when you're in those hospital rooms that you never hoped to be in and when you're at that funeral sitting on the front row that you never hoped to attend or when you're looking at your bank account or your investments or you're just so concerned about the future, I want you to remember that it will not always be this way. It will not always be this way. Revelation 21, there is a new heaven and a new earth coming. There will be no more funerals. There will be no more famines. There will be no more false messiahs. There will be no more fractured relationships and no more evictions and no more price hikes that scare the heck out of you and there will be no more threats. There will be no more anxiety. There will be no more misunderstandings between friends. Can you say amen? There will be no more despair and no more depression. There will be be no more sickness and disease. There will be no more chemo in that great and final day of the Lord. There will be no more tribalism and no more terror in the nights that steals our sleep. There will be no more wars and no separation caused by deployments. There will be no more separation, no more curse. So what I'm here to say to you tonight, friends, is hang on. Stand, endure, press on. Not in your own strength. The spirit of the Lord will give you the strength to endure. But keep on going. Stand together and endure together and pray together and serve together and break bread together in your homes. Strengthen each other with your resources and be a part of the body of Christ. And Let's raise our children together and tell that great day of the Lord when there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering.
no more mourning, for the old order of things will have passed away. When you get the Bible out, I pray that you know how to locate yourself in the big sweep of God's salvation story. There's creation, and God saw that it was good. There's fall. We know that the snake slithers up to seduce us away. Resist him at every turn. There's Israel, God gathering a people and giving them a word and calling them to be a blessing. And thank God there's Jesus who has come to bear the weight of our sin and our shame. And he was hung naked on a cross and publicly shamed so that shame would be driven out in Jesus' name and life would reign forevermore. There's the spirit-empowered church. And don't, rem- don't forget that it will not always be this way. New creation is coming. Friends, tonight, I pray that you would see Jesus as the center of the story. Jesus as the key to unlock all those textual doors as you look back and you're stumped over certain parts of the Old Testament. Just remember Jesus is the way forward. What do we do with our enemies? Look at Jesus. What do we do when we're afraid? Look at Jesus. What do we do with our lives? Look at Jesus. What do we do with our friendships? Look at Jesus. What do we do with our our bodies? Look at Jesus. And when you look toward the future and you've got all these questions, look at Jesus, crucified, buried, but he was raised on the third day and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. This is where our story is going. Can you say amen tonight, church? Stand with me tonight. Would you get your communion elements and be ready to receive? If you don't have communion elements, raise your hand. Our team is going to quickly come through the room. We've got some in the back here. Thank you. If you'd open that up there and get the wafer ready to receive and the cup ready to receive. When we come to this moment at the table of the Lord, I want us to think about the two meals on either side of this meal. The first meal is Adam and Eve taking the story into their own hands, where there's the fracturing, the fall, the breaking apart of communion. That's the first crucial meal that was devastating. But I want you to think about the meal at the end. Revelation 19 talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, where every tribe and tongue and nation and people group are gathered around the table in the name of Jesus and and creation has been restored and all there is is a meal full of joy in the Lord's presence. And right here at this meal, I want us to repent of all the things that we've done that have been to our fracturing, to the breaking apart of communion. So we'll start there and then I want us to think about the meal that's coming, that Jesus has secured for us and will lead us into. So first, Can you begin to repent and think about the things that you've done to walk away from God? Maybe it's a hidden sin. Maybe it's habits that you've given yourself over to. Maybe it's just a deep, let's just be honest, a deep hatred of someone. Someone's offended you or hurt you or broken you apart and and led your life into chaos, and you've taken that, and and understandably, you've internalized that, but the enemy wants you to nurse that wound for the rest of your life so that you can't receive the gift from Jesus. Whatever it is, would you begin to repent and give yourself back over to the Lord tonight? 
so that he can bring us into communion. Lord, we repent. We're sorry for the things that we've done that have led to the fracturing of relationships, that have led to the fracturing of the wholeness in our lives. We repent. And we pray that you would heal us tonight. And I want you to think forward to that great marriage supper of the Lamb that's coming. And Lord, right now in this moment, we ache for that day. We pray, Lord, come, bring restoration. Come quickly, Lord. Come and bring deliverance and life and salvation. And as we're here at the table, we, we not only look back at the past, but we look forward to the future. In Jesus' name, Jesus at the table that night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. Would you break that wafer in your hand? He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And as often as you do this, do this for the remembrance of me. Remember what I've done and remember what I've secured. Do this for the remembrance of me. And Church, you may receive the bread tonight. On the same night, he took the cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant given in my blood. And it's given for the remission of all of your sins. As often as you do this, do this for the remembrance of me. Church, tonight there is newness and new creation can begin inside of us tonight because of the work of Jesus. Jesus has forgiven you. And so step into that future that he's got for you. You may receive the cup tonight. We're going to sing this song in Christ alone because Jesus is the center of this story. So let's worship the Lord Jesus together, and I'll be back in just a minute. Thank you. 
is the power of Christ in me from life's first cry to final breath oh Jesus commands my destiny no power of hell no scheme of man can ever block me from this hand till he returns what calls me sing one more. Lauren, can you lead us and all the earth will shout your praise? I think that's a key for you. Our hearts will cry. Come on. The earth Come on, church. Shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. Come on, church. for coming to New Life Church slash seminary tonight. A little bit of teaching on the big sweep of the Bible. I know it's not your standard 
sermon, but thanks for hanging with me. And here's what I want to encourage you to do is open the book and read it. We are so consumed with media consumption and stats show that Christians aren't really reading the Bible that much anymore in large swaths. So open the book and let the words wash over you. Let the words heal you. Let the words give you hope for the future. Let's be the people of the book. Amen. Open your hands tonight as we prepare to leave. I pray that the Lord our God would bless you and that he would keep you that he'd make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord will lift his bright, smiling countenance upon you and all of your people. And I pray these things, may he grant you peace. And I pray these things tonight in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Can we give God thanks for what he's done tonight? Real quick, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. Two things, prayer team will be down front and teachers, administrators, homeschool parents, all of you who are doing such hard work to raise our kids up, go back to Guest Central. We've got gifts for you tonight. We want to send you out here with just a little bit of joy. So swing back there and get your gift on your way out. Go from here in God's grace and peace. Much love.